Please stay standing while we read the word of God. Today it's Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the reason of Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described, it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you open it to us. God, may your spirit be our rule, your word be our guide, and your glory our only concern. So last week, Sean talked about how we got here. And the take, what I want to bring from last week to this is that getting here was not easy. Getting here had, was very dangerous and had a price. It was crossing the Sea of Galilee over a huge storm. This was a dangerous thing. Jesus is traveling and Jesus is on mission. Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing and revealing who he is and what it is to live in the kingdom of God. And I want to talk about the region that Jesus is going to because this is not, there's some history and background here that's important to open up. The region that's described, oh, thank you. The region that's described is, I'll make sure I get this right, Gerasenes, which I apologize I did not pronounce correctly, but 
This is a city that is in the region, in this area known as the Decapolis. And I want to talk about that for a second because this is not the same as Capernaum or in Galilee or the other areas Jesus has worked in and preached in and acted in so far. The Decapolis is a Greek, it's a collection of Greek colony. Literally translated, it means 10 towns. But it's a region when, back when the Greeks came, Alexander the Great rode up. They settled here. They set up towns. These were not Jewish towns. These were colonies that were Greek. These were places where Jews lived in the minority. And so it's very different for Jesus to be coming here. And so I can imagine the disciples talking about, okay, what are we going to do here? We're going into this place that is not, it should be ours, but now it's ruled by these other people. It's actually not just this cultural battle where these Hellenists are coming to visit and then they go away or they're talking about us, they're trading with us and then oppressing us and then leaving. This is where these people live. These are their homes. This is not where the synagogue is necessarily the center of, the cultural center of these towns. There are pagan temples. There are Greek gymnasiums. There are Greek scholarly thought. These are places where these are now entrenched bastions where the populace isn't necessarily Jewish. And so if I were a disciple, I, like, I, I put a lot of effort into getting here. I've traveled. So what, where am I going? Okay, what are we going to do now that we're here? Are we going to go to the major city? Are we going to go to the synagogue? Are we going to try to build up the Jewish people who live here? Are we going to try to you know, embolden them to resist the Hellenization, that Greek culture that is coming to, in our eyes, replace Judaism? Or are we going to go to the temple? Are we going to try to tell these Gentiles, these outsiders, everything that they're doing wrong and explain to them what the kingdom of God is? And so I have to imagine it was caught them a bit off guard, that they're not going to the cultural center, they're not going to crowds of people, they're not going to where we would imagine the center of power to be to try to have the best bang for our buck. They go to a graveyard. Which is odd, one, because a graveyard is not necessarily what we consider the center of power. This is not when you're on mission and thinking, I'm going to go evangelize and preach the word. This isn't even a desolate, quiet place. I mean, in our eyes, graveyards are creepy. but. In Jewish tradition, graveyards are unclean. This is where the dead are buried, and you do not interact with the dead. In fact, if you actually like, physically interact with dead bodies, there's steps you have to take in order for you to be considered clean enough to interact with normal society again. And so Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee, across this huge storm, taken his disciples, like, nearly gave them a heart attack in order to get to this place to go to a graveyard. This is not how we imagine mission and evangelism to go. Now, I also want to contrast who he finds here and the man that he reaches, this demon-possessed man. Because his experience is actually very different than the experience of the Decapolis proper. Because in the Decapolis, you have, you're on the bleeding edge of culture, where you have Hellenists who just live their daily lives out next to Jews who live their daily lives out, and there's a lot of tension. Because historically, they remember when they came and conquered and settled. And then they remembered when the Jews rose up and revolted and ruled over them. And that was awkward because all of a sudden they tell us that our gods are, our, our pantheon's wrong and we can't, oh, there are all these rules about cleanliness. What do you mean we can't eat pig? What do you mean we can't eat pork? And then the Romans came and that was, well, occupied, but they were actually, they were semi-autonomous under Roman rule. They had their own money. They printed their own coins. And so when we think about the Jewish experience, 
there's a lot of tension this time. There are revolts that are rumors of revolts that are coming up, and it's like, maybe we'll be free. The Decapolis looks at this very differently. We have something stable. We kind of like it. But every moment this could change, this is a tense place. And you never know when these Jewish people are going to rise up and start another war and ruin our way of life, ruin the life that we've built here. But there's this tension. At any moment, something could change. But for the man Jesus meets in the grave, there is nothing in his life that ever indicates that anything could change. And I just want to point out the language that's written here. It was a man with an unclean spirit. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a change, because he had often been bound. Think about this. If you know someone who all of a sudden goes crazy or is possessed by something you don't understand, can't see, can't control, your first reaction is not, well, okay, you have to go to the graveyard. Your first reaction is, okay, what do we do to help? Okay, I'm sure there's somebody who can do something to fix this, right? And there were a lot of options in this area. Again, this was a place where you had established cultures that were very different living next to each other. And it doesn't actually record what you know, tribe he's from. But you could easily imagine if this was a Jewish person, he would go to the synagogue. Can you cast this demon out? Can you help me? Go to the priest. Can you do something about this? If you're Greek, go to the temple. Or maybe you get desperate enough that you're one and you go to the other. You try different things. By the time you get to where you have to shackle someone in order to keep them from harming you, you're desperate. And even that doesn't work. He still, whoever, I don't know who his family is, who his friends are, but there is no way they can actually maintain relationship with him. Every last thing they've tried has failed to the point where they bind him. And he still breaks free. And he is a danger. And so this is a man who has exhausted every last lifeline that he has. And that's very difficult for us in America to think about, at least in our particular piece of America, because there's always, in whatever state we're in, there's one more medication that I know we, we can, you know, maybe it's a long shot, but we can try it. There's something else we can do. Or, you know, I have one more job offer. I can apply to this place and I can see if, you know, maybe it's just one in a million, but there's one more job offer I can, like, I can put this out. Or, you know, there's, there's this practice we haven't tried. There's one more thing we can try to find to fix our problem because there's so much available to us. This is a man who did not have hope because everything available to him was exhausted. He lived in death among the dead. His future, he knew exactly what it looked like because it looked exactly like his present. There was nothing left. Every day, I'm going to live among the dead until I die tormented by a force that is beyond me, that I cannot control, that I cannot contain, that no one around me has any power over. There is nothing that can be done, and that is his day to day to day. Until in one moment, Jesus shows up. And, and I want to talk, this is a part that I find, I, I'm going to get to a part where I'm going to talk about some things that I think, I find confusing, and then full admission, there's some things I don't have some answers for, but I want to try to at very least walk through it and then walk to what we can learn from it. Because this is a man who he, and at least anyone who's tried to help him, has been in battle with this force for a long time. And in my mind, when I think of casting out demons, this is an action movie. Like, 
Okay, demon, casting out demons is where you take, you know, your bullet, you dip it in holy water to make it more awesome, and then you go to war and battle, and there are explosions in slow motion. Has anyone seen the movie Constantine? Okay, that's, if you haven't, that's a good thing. It's not a very good movie. But, like, it looks pretty awesome. Or maybe, maybe casting out demons looks like The Exorcist, which is actually a better movie, where you have this just visceral experience, this grueling, draining battle where just through the strength of will, you continue to fight and it immense, immeasurable personal cost to yourself. Finally, at the end of this, you triumph and the demon is cast out. But that's not what we have at all. There's no battle. There's not even debate. Jesus shows up and the, this, the demon that is possessing this man, his first reaction is that is the son of the living God. This is a man with authority. This is a man I can't compete. I'm not even going to try. There is no you know, battle before we finally reach some kind of terms of truce. This is immediately over before it begins. Jesus comes in and all of a sudden this paradigm that has been the same from day to day to day to day to day is now shattered. Where literally all that happens is Jesus says, come out of him. And there's not even like resistance, it's please no. The demon is literally, it says, begging Jesus. And I want to talk about the demons. And I don't know, like, I, there's a lot of things I don't know about what, how this works, but the demon immediately recognized Jesus' authority. There was no question. And at the same time, there was, there's no move, like, this is a being who has no seemingly even concept of repentance. I fully recognize your authority and fully refuse to recognize that I should do anything about it. His first instinct is one of self-preservation. Don't torture me. And there's nothing more. And then the demon says something that I find very interesting. It says, because he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the region. And I'm going to talk about it in a second. But I have to admit, there are different schools of thought as to what happens next and why Jesus does this. Because they apparently have a conversation where the demon is, I assume, desperate, says, oh, look, there, pigs. I can just have those. Just let me, let me go over there. And again, for reasons I honestly don't, and I've heard different explanations that they're swine, it's a representation of something unclean, that it's a this is a demon, a group of demons, legion, that's representative of Rome, and this is the, this is the death of this oppressive force. But I'll be honest, I, I can't answer why Jesus said, does this. It says, Jesus gives the demons permission to enter the pigs. But I do think I understand, or at least I can offer some explanation as to why the demons wanted this. They wanted to enter the pigs. They wanted to, specifically, they wanted to, they begged him to let him remain in the area. In the area they're in, one, like, the demon had this I assume he'd set this up the way he wanted it. He literally had the living within the dead. This man he had brought and tortured and tormented to the point where all he could do is live in a graveyard. But beyond that, this is a man who's from the Decapolis. This is a man who's from a place where you have two very rich cultures that don't really like one another and are forced to live next to one another. And I think at this point, I do know something about what it's like 
to live in a place that has many cultures that live together in tension. And I think I can start to understand that this is not fertile ground for the gospel. This is a place where people are inherently distrustful of one another. This is a place where one tribe looks at another and says, you, you're an outsider, you're an invader, you are foreign. You are eroding our culture and our way of life, and you do all of these things that God has told me are unclean and wrong. And look, I was born here, I lived here, my parents lived here. You're very strange. We have a pantheon, like you could in theory fit, I guess, but you don't really like this idea of multiple gods. And in fact, you yell at us a lot and you're very rebellious and violent. It wasn't that long ago when your kings ruled over us and we didn't like that at all. We don't trust you. And one thing that I think I can recognize from the way, from our culture, is that distrust between tribes and between cultures goes far beyond these high points that we talk about. It goes far beyond, well, this is how I think we should order government. This is how I think we should order culture. This is the types of symbols that I think we should set ourselves by. It goes far beyond that to, you're different and I don't trust you. Because you don't understand clearly all of the things that I do, and so you must not be quite as good a person. I bet maybe you're not as, you couldn't clearly be as smart as I am, or else you would clearly agree with me and see my way. You're not as nice a person because the way you order things, the way you just see this idea of the way we should be structured has holes and gaps. And I don't think you really, you, and I don't mean like this structure is wrong. I mean you. All I know about you is this identity, this label, and because of that, I know that you are not as nice a person. You're not as good a person. And I want to talk about what happened because there's a story that comes out of this. Jesus is on mission. He's, he's coming to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But we know the story that gets told, what's recorded. Jesus cast out a demon. It went into the pigs. The pigs drowned. The herdsmen come, and they go to town. And I want to point out, the people who come back from town, there's, at least there's no record of anyone who has anything that they want to do with this man who has been healed. There's no record of a father who's come to see, is this real? Are you really back, my son? There's no record of a sister or a brother. There's no record of a friend coming to check in. We've tried everything. Maybe, just maybe, there's no one who bring, who's recorded that bring any outsider that brings hope that this could be a real thing. All they see is there's a Jew who's come and he's, I don't know what's happened, but my entire herd of pigs, my livelihood is dead in the river. And now this Jew's hanging out with the town crazy person. And this is actually very easy to see how this distrust could, this is a type of healing that's very difficult to understand. If you are lame and you walk, no one expects you to spontaneously have your legs rebroken. If you're blind and you see, no one spontaneously expects you to just not be able to see again. But the type of, and it says this is very different than the issue of mental health or other things, and I don't mean to equate spiritual battles with things that are physical, but they are similar in the sense that they are invisible to our eyes. We have nothing physical and tangible we can grab onto. 
And so, I mean, this is something that I can, in my life, I can really see. I know people who deal with mental health issues. And frankly, I mean, there are spiritual issues interlaced with that. But if Jesus came to me and said, this person is healed, and all of a sudden they came and they had walked away from all of the death and all of the destruction and all of the lies that they had come from, I'd be like, wait, is this a trick? Because I, I don't know what healing is. I know what relapse is. And I can easily see these people look at this man who had been possessed by a demon, who had overpowered all of them, who they had tried to bind in chains and broken free. Jesus, you, listen, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who you are, but you're a Jew, and now you're hanging out with this dangerous, crazy person. And at any moment, he might snap back. Are you telling me that I'm supposed to just accept that this has happened and it's finally over? This wasn't over. We've done everything. There's nothing left to do. And so it's much easier and it's much more instinctive to be afraid. And it says they begged him to leave. This is not how we would define a successful mission trip. Okay, I went over to the foreign land, I ran in, and I preached to one person. And after I did something with him, and he, he, he saved, but then everyone else said, you have to go. And I want to talk back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about the parable of the sower. Because we talked about how some, like Jesus said, some seeds are scattered on fertile ground, but others are chopped up by the birds immediately. Others are planted and the worries of this world, the thorns ride over them and they're quenched and crushed. I would suggest that one of the reasons this demon and this group of demons begged to remain in this area was that this was an area that was not fertile ground for the gospel. This is a place where people do not trust one another. And beyond disagreements about philosophy or the way we order society, I just, I know one thing about you and it makes you a worse person. This is fertile ground for the enemy. And then Jesus leaves. And I want to point to the last part of the story, which is, is critical about the man he had healed. And there's a couple points that I want to highlight. It says, when he was get, Jesus was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. This is very different from Jesus' ministry, typically, where there's no one who wants to follow Jesus in the long term. Either people, crowds come, and then he says something like, what do you mean? I have to eat, like this is, I, and then the crowds scatter. Or the rich ruler, or the, other, the men who say, I want to follow you, Jesus. And he says, are you, are you sure you know the cost? He says, wait, let me just bury my father. No, do you know the cost? He says, let me follow you. Do you know that you won't have a place to sleep? Do you know the cost of following me? And it's actually, mo more people leave Jesus then commit to following him. This man says, I want to follow you. And it makes perfect sense. This is a man who is utterly rejected by everyone around him, every friend he has had, every family member. There's no one that in this story that has come out and said, I am so excited you're back. Everyone is afraid. He's been at this a while. It's not like he can go back to being a carpenter 
or a builder or whatever his occupation was, if he had one before any of this happened to just jumpstart his life. He has literally nothing but the clothes on his back. Staying home is not a fun thing. It would be grueling because everyone he saw, most people know about him, who he is, and when he walks around in the regions that know him, all of them look at him with distrust. Are you going to, are you really cured? Is the demon coming back? Are you going to break free again? Are you going to harm me, my family, my property? It would be much easier if you just went to the grave. And then I want to point out what Jesus says. Jesus did not let him come with him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, the last time I talked, I pointed out just how rare a thing it was that the default, the most common response that Jesus has with that he, the people he interacts with, that he heals, and that he reveals his power to is to say, do not tell anyone this happened. Wait until later. The world is not ready. Don't tell people that you saw me in the transfiguration. Don't tell people that you've been healed. And in fact, even in this very region where he is, in the Decapolis, if you fast forward two chapters, when he heals, he tells this person, don't tell anyone I did this. And so I think it's very worthwhile to ask, why is this different? Why is it this time? Why is it this man in this place and this time? Jesus says, go to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Why is it this time? Proclaim this from the rooftops. Tell everybody. And I'll point out two things. The first is that this is not a man with any, he doesn't have any baggage left. This isn't a man who's hanging on to his, to his property or his family or his reputation. He's not hooked up on, he's not a Pharisee who's built himself up. I can be pure enough and clean enough and then God will come and I can do this. And it's very, I've invested so much in this thing that's going to encourage God to return to us. He's not someone who's, at least I would guess, he hasn't spent, at least recently, a lot of time trying to tease apart the finer points of philosophy or dogma or culture or understand what it is. What it, you know, is, the, is the Messiah coming to the Jew and the Gentile alike or just the Gentile or just the Jew? What is, he has nothing but the clothes on his back. All he has is his foundation, which is Christ. The only thing he has to tell people is I was dead among the dead and I met Jesus, and I'm alive. I am healed. And I think about in John when Jesus, it, it, it describes the story of the man born blind, and it's comical when you read it because Jesus heals a man born blind, and no one can believe it, and they keep trying to say the Pharisees question, but no, we know the law. We know how this works, and this doesn't match our idea of what the Savior could be. This is he, tell us what happened to you. And he's just, look, I have no idea what you're talking about. All I know is I was born blind, I met a man named Jesus, and now I see. And it just, this goes against so much of what they have tethered themselves to, what they have invested their reputations and their lives in. And 
the, the, the counter argument to, their, to the Pharisees is not, you know, let me walk through the finer points of dogma to explain why you're wrong. Let me go through all of these fine, not this detailed apologetics. It's, guys, I was blind and now I see. And as I said before, this, by all appearances, the Decapolis, this region of 10 towns that, it was actually not 10 towns, it was very iffy. There's a lot of squishiness. It was 10, except they kind of counted a couple more, and so it was 12, but are they really in the bubble? And I think that's also something we can understand. The lines of culture are very gray. And it's very easy to jump into this debate that we have where you can be Republican or Democrat, where you can be, you know, have a conservative or liberal view of the finer points of theology, where you can go to Northern Ireland, you can be Catholic or Protestant. And all of a sudden, and these are good debates to have, and I don't mean we shouldn't find truth and we should not, we should speak truth to power. What I mean is, it is, the, it is human nature to see someone who disagrees with us, who is different than us, and think, this is actually not just about these debates we're having. It's about you are not as good a person as I am. You are not trustworthy. And I have a worse view of you because of this one label that I know of you. And this is the, fertile gra the infertile ground this demon enjoyed. And so when we look at this story, and it talks about Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is not a man with an agenda. This is a man who is going back. In fact, he's doing the harder thing, going back to everyone who knows him and knows all of the story about him, about how he's not to be trusted, about how he's dangerous, about how everything has been tried and hope is extinguished time and time and time again. And all he can do is go back to these people and say, look, I don't have an answer to these finer points of you know, philosophical debate. I don't have an answer to whether we should speak Greek or Aramaic. I don't have an answer to all of these things. What I know is that I was dead and literally in the grave. And that is where I was going to be. It's where I was always going to stay. I would live there until I die, until at one moment, Jesus came and saved me. And that's why I am in front of you right now. And so he went back, and he had to go back, day after day after day, to people who did not trust him, and say, no, this is real. And the next day, no, this is real. And the next day, no, this is real to where this infertile ground where the word was literally so, like Jesus came, the word was sown, and it was rejected. Jesus said, you, you are going to proclaim the good news. Go to your home and tell them what the Lord has done for you. And the reason I point this out also is if we fast forward, and I'm not going to go into it because we will probably in a couple weeks, a few chapters later, which I have no idea how that translates chronologically, Jesus comes back to this area. And these same people who saw what happened and said, you're just this Jew who meddles in our affairs and is going to, I, I don't know what you're doing, but you've wrecked this and I don't trust you. These same people who, who were, said, we were afraid of you and they begged him to leave their area. 
when Jesus returns, after this has happened, after this first story is told about fear, and this second story told by this one man who has an experience that says, this is who God is. This is what God has done. This second story supplants the first. This infertile ground where people reject the word of God. Now invite him in. Because when Jesus returns the second time to this area, to the Decapolis, to this place that rejected him, instead of saying, no, we know who you are, and we heard this story, and these, we know where you are, we said, wait, maybe the first story we heard isn't the truth. Maybe you are, there's something to you. Maybe you do bring healing. And it says they brought their sick to him, and he healed them. Because there was a new story that was told. There was a new good news that this isn't simply the next revolt. This isn't simply the next point of tension, the next back and forth. Something fundamentally different has changed in this. We're not simply waiting for the next shift in the pendulum for power shifts from one to the next. Someone has come who, someone has come who speaks with authority and changes lives and brings grace and hope and life. And so as we go from this place into our world, and I know here there's a diversity of thought, philosophically, theologically, politically. All of these debates are important to have, and it is valuable that we speak truth to power. But it is even more so valuable that we remember that the people we are speaking to are God's creation. That just because we have certain disagreements on these philosophies, that these aren't worse people because of it. And that beneath all of this, beneath all of these different debates we can have, we were dead. God met us. And we are now alive.